This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. This week on Lends Me Your Ears, we take a look at Come From Away and homegrown films made in Nova Scotia from Evangeline to Hobo with a Shotgun. So here we are again, Stephen. Thanks very much uh, for meeting me here. We can talk about movies again. It's my, my pleasure. Favorite. It's my favorite thing. Yes, it's, it's something to look forward to every every couple of weeks to come down and talk about movies. Uh, and we're coming off of a big movie binge at the Atlantic Film Festival here in our hometown of Halifax. And it seemed like a good time to look at movies that were actually shot here in Halifax and uh, around the province of Nova Scotia. We have a weird situation here where we're in a kind of remote area of Canada where they've made a lot of movies. <laughs> it, yeah, it's true. You know, I, I've lived here. This is... Well, it has become my hometown, my adopted hometown, and I've been here 12 years, and I've seen a lot of films get shot in the area, and I've caught up with a few older ones that I had no idea were made here, and and, and there is there is a real history of it, but, but it's also a history that seems to be a little hard to track down. You know, as with probably many places in Canada, the sort of myth-making machinery that the Americans are so good at in terms of m- remembering all the work that they did in the past isn't quite as m- much on on track here and and stuff just vanishes I, the stuff that I've heard about you've told me about but there's a I, yeah otherwise I don't know that I would even have realized how many different things have been shot here yeah it's very weird like the the history of film production in this uh, province uh, certainly prior to the 1980s at least was it's been kind of sketchy <laughs> the, the, the films always seem to be kind of fly by night or or you know not part of a, of a, a landed uh, industry here so you get things like uh, the silent film version of Evangeline which is shot here uh, I guess just before the First World War and it was the first uh, actually the first feature film shot in Canada the studio still exists uh, it's the uh, Iron Foundry building at the very very south end of uh, Barrington Street um, that was their soundstage and it's an old stone building that's still there um, but the film itself has vanished there are no known prints just a handful of uh, um, of uh, still photography uh, that was done on the set of people in costume both in uh, in Halifax and uh, on location down in the Annapolis Valley and that's it that's all they know um, you know some people tried to track down where the last prints might have gone but the the company folded when uh, the second world war or the first world war kind of made materials and markets scarce and uh, that was kind of the end of it um, and this isn't the only version of Evangeline that's out no there. no there's a, there were a few silent versions it's funny that there hasn't really been much in the way of a sound version of that story it seems like kind of epic it's probably the sort of thing that would wind up as like a international co-production TV miniseries or something more than a feature film I guess but there were, there was a later silent version uh, I think maybe directed by Raul Walsh maybe a great uh, Film director starred um, Dolores Del Rio as a Acadian uh, lass, uh, Evangeline, shot in the uh, Acadian environs of Northern California. So, <laughs> it's a yeah, it's it's a beautiful film actually, and and Dolores is great. Uh, I don't know how Acadian she looks, but um, it's 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 uh, not a bad film, and it has uh, since been released and restored and so on. And I actually found a little souvenir booklet of it uh, down in the valley uh, not too long ago in an antique store in. 
Canning, I think. Or oh, no, yeah. sorry, uh, Port Williams. So, um, yeah, so th- that was kind of a big deal in these parts to have that uh, that story show up on film. At least at least one of the versions survives, if not the one that was actually made here. But, it's, you know, it's kind of spotty after that. Um, there's uh, a handful of newsreels. There's some Technicolor uh, MGM travel talks that were shot here, you uh-huh. know, which have that corny, you know, as the sun sets slowly in the west, we bid to fond farewell to the shores of scenic Nova Scotia. And they, they turn up on uh, TCM from time to time. I actually have a couple of them that I managed to save and record to uh, DVDR or whatever, um, just from catching them on at the end of movies to, as filler on TCM. But uh, but actual features are a pretty, pretty rare thing in Canada in general, but uh, certainly certainly in this part of the world where there wasn't an infrastructure for it. Well, you pointed out to me uh, Corvette K225 from 1943, and this is a film I knew nothing about, but apparently Howard Hawks produced it and maybe potentially did some uncredited directing. It's a wartime drama, and uh, the clip, you can actually find it on YouTube. There's a clip that is shot just outside the University of King's College here in in Halifax, uh, which stands in for a naval school, and there is this uh, marching band going around, and, and and the actors, the lead actors, are there, but I suspect they're actually in a in a sound studio somewhere, and and it's just like the the backdrop of the marching band is is actually in in at the college, but the Randolph Scott, Ella Raines, and James Brown are not there. No, no, um, the uh, I've seen the film. It, History Channel showed it once. And I managed to see it uh, the one time they showed it, and then they never showed it again, and certainly not available on home video. I think there's bootleg copies available on the gray market if you go on eBay or some of the sort of weird Bush League versions of eBay. You could actually find a copy of it because um, there's a lot of Randolph Scott fans. Randolph Scott uh, fans, <laughs> sorry. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Uh. <laughs> you, see, you see Blazing Saddles one too many times. Um <laughs> <laughs> but a pretty, but pretty cool story. That, you know, they, they made this film about the corvettes, which were these escort vessels of the Canadian Navy. Um, my old history professor in uh, university actually served on one of those. He said they were, they rocked like a son of a gun. Like if you didn't have your sea legs, that was not a ship you wanted to be on because apparently they did not um, handle the the waves very well. They're meant to sort of go be sleek and go fast, but uh, they weren't. Uh, necessarily very steady uh, on the ways but they were meant to be quick and speedy escorts for the convoys and uh, they were the corvette i mean that's why they used the name for the car right sure because they were speedy ships you know in a time when warships were heavy and slow and these were designed to be otherwise and were good for defense so they found this story about uh the men who serve on these ships and their role in the, the convoys and uh you know, evading the u-boats and all that kind of stuff and uh you know it's a pretty courageous typical kind of 1940s rah-rah war film uh, probably designed to get people in the U.S. more into the, the idea of the war effort um, and uh, Randolph Scott is great I mean he's 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 a man of uh, limited abilities as an actor but you know he fills the heroic role really well and uh, also an early role for Robert Mitchum who's one of my all-time favorite movie stars and the fact that he was here in Halifax, uh, in, I, I don't even think he gets billing, but you can see him. You spot him amongst the sort of rank-and-file sailors um, in the course of the movie, and he's got a bit of dialogue, too, mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the film. But um, years later, I, I met a guy who uh, was just a... He was, like, you know, in his late teens when the film was made, and he got to be... Uh, he got a job as a driver on the film, like taking the movie stars from the set to their hotel rooms and whatever and he actually got to pal around with Robert Mitchum because he had a lot of downtime apparently um, between uh, you know he wasn't in that many scenes so he had some days off and stuff and they would go out drinking and that kind of stuff <laughs> so so the, you know I feel like I'm one degree of separation away from Robert <laughs> Mitchum after meeting or maybe two I guess for meeting this guy who 
hung around with them uh, during the war when they were making this film. So awesome. It's, it's, it's a neat little film and there's a lot of footage shot on the Halifax waterfront and in the harbor and you see shots of the, the footage of the convoys and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, King's College was actually used uh, as a naval base during the war. Uh, in fact, that's why the, um, the, the, the bar, the student bar in, at King's College is called the ward room because that's what you called the officer's uh, lounge or whatever no on, a, on a ship is actually the ward room. <laughs> as, as a former, uh, uh, as an alum of uh, of King's College, I had no idea about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually a naval term. I huh. mean, that's, and that's why they rang the, they had the bell over the bar. And yeah, yeah. There's a, they've, they've redone the place a few times, but I think some of, there was a lot more nautical junk on the walls and right. and so on in the bar. I think a lot of that's disappeared over the years, but, but it still has some of that... Uh, Navy history kind of cool. in there, but the, so that's that's why they used uh, the King's uh, College as a backdrop. Um, I think some of it was actually shot there on location, but there are a lot of shots that clearly are soundstage with right. with background footage of uh, King's College kind of piped in, pro- probably done in Hollywood for a mm-hmm. while. Um, now to continue to talk about come from away filmmakers coming to Nova Scotia tell stories, you track down something called. Run Stranger Run from 1973, <laughs> yes. which is also known on the IMDb as Happy Mother's Day, Love George. Love George, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I first heard about this film when um, actually Darren McGavin uh, directed this film. Darren McGavin was Kolchak the Night Stalker, of course, in the fabulous uh, TV series and two really fine uh, TV movies uh, from Dan Curtis, the guy who created Dark Shadows and did some really great sort of adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein on TV and was kind of and also that trilogy of terror uh, movie with the, the the killer doll that chases Karen Black around her apartment um, the Zuni <laughs> fetish doll it was called the Trilo- Trilogy of Terror uh-huh. anyway Dan Curtis was the king of, of, of uh, TV horror and uh, I guess he he, uh, he came up with the Kolchak uh, movie and I think Richard Matheson might have had some involvement in that too but anyway that's where Darren McGavin a lot of people know him from that and then of course he was the father in uh a Christmas story. So those are the, probably the two key things he's known for. Plus, playing a character uh, sort of inspired by Kolchak on the on uh, the X Files. So, um, so you know, a really great character actor. He's even in a Jerry Lewis movie, The Delicate Delinquent. But I guess he tried to decided to turn his hand to directing, and so he directed this film, shot around Lunenburg and Mahone Bay, or as it's called in the movie, Malone Bay. <laughs> I think it's actually supposed to be taking place in the United States. Right. Because uh, I think there's a uh, Simon Oakland, who was McGavin's co-star on uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker, shows up as a sheriff. And <clears throat> we have sheriffs in Nova Scotia, but not generally it's not the town sheriff who right. does all the law uh, upholding. So I, yeah. I, I think it's supposed to be kind of like a New England town, but they don't really get too specific about it, I don't think. It's... it's, it's, uh, it's it's, I think, a TV movie, but it did have an overseas theatrical release. So, um, so it's one of those kind of nebulous, kind of half TV, half theatrical films. And there's some stuff in the film that's actually pretty risque for TV. I'm, I'm guessing that maybe they inserted some stuff that was a little more adult for the European version right. or something like that. Like you actually see a bare breast, and there's some pretty grody violence. But in, anyway, which leads me to the actual storyline. Basically, the, there's this small town. Presumably New England, even though it's almost Mahone Bay, Malone Bay. <laughs> and uh, Ron Howard plays this kind of drifter who comes home after, uh, well, we don't even know it's his home. He just kind of shows up one day and is roaming around the town and 
getting involved in the locals' business, and um, he <laughs> and then uh, he meets this kind of strange young woman who becomes kind of fascinated with him, and we find out what his connection to the town was. Uh, Cloris Leachman plays the owner of the local diner, who seems to have some sort of connection to him. Uh, Patricia Neal um, is. Uh, this woman who turns out to be Cloris Leachman's sister, and she's kind of like the town matriarch, um, who's you know kind of the the snooty pinnacle of society or whatever. And uh, Patricia Neal's daughter, uh, who's actually the daughter, also the daughter of Roald Dahl. Uh, I know they were married. Patricia Neal was married to Roald Dahl, the author of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and so on. Um, anyway, their daughter plays kind of the psycho girl who. Uh, kind of takes this fancy to Ron Howard so it's kind wow. of weird yeah and she's a, gives a very odd performance it's on YouTube in its entirety uh, under the Run Stranger Run title which is what <laughs> it came out on Columbia Home Video put it out on VHS which is where this copy comes from worth watching just to see all these kind of familiar Mahone Bay Lunenburg South Shore kind of locations um, but also for its really loopy psycho killer plot, because for long chunks of the movie, we kind of forget that people are disappearing and dying, <laughs> and it gets more wrapped up in like the romantic lives of these characters. Bobby Darren shows up for a while as as um, Cloris Leachman's boyfriend. I mean, just to, to think of this legendary uh, pop singer turning up for a minor role in this kind of wonky TV thriller is kind of just very bizarre. But I found out about it when when Darren McGavin died, and I went, okay. I went, at, at, I was at the Herald going through the archives, just looking up whatever they had on Darren McGavin. And I found this uh, clipping of a story about, you know, TV star directs movie on the South Shore and they had a photo of him directing a scene on a wharf in Mahone Bay somewhere and Ron Howard was standing in front of the camera. And was, <laughs> I'd never heard of this thing prior to then and, uh, you know, and that's how I became intrigued by this film. But it was right. only until recently that, you know, somebody actually posted on YouTube and I was able to see it. And it's it's not very good, but it's kind of fun in a dopey 70s TV movie kind of way. There's, there's something about those 70s TV movies, especially when they tried to do a genre thing like horror or whatever. They could either be like super cheesy or incredibly disturbing. Like some of those Kolchak things are actually really scary. Mm-hmm. I saw those when I was a kid. But also, you know, you think of Bad Ronald or or, or The Wave or some of these films that uh, are genuinely creepy in a way that sometimes feature films, uh, you know, they go for the shock and awe as opposed to just being really unsettling and that's what a lot of these TV movies are but it does have like a slam bang kind of slasher finish at least um, I realize that uh, that I'm I'm jumping around the chronology that's here because right. I, I I neglected to mention uh, High Tide at Noon which from from 57 which is also a from away film that supposedly takes place on an island uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you know off enough. the coast uh, though uh, though it's actually shot largely at Northwest Cove which, yeah near you know, Blanford yeah so it's yeah it's shot on the, the Aspatagan Peninsula uh, outside of uh, Hubbard's there um, yeah well the exteriors were it's it's um, yeah it's a weird kind of British uh, Canadian co-production with uh, a, a cast that includes Patrick McGowan, a, very, a young pre-prisoner, a pre-danger man, Patrick McGowan, trying to affect some sort of uh, Nova Scotia accent, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't it's sound really, like... It's really it, odd. It's, it's, it's kind of Irishy. Yeah. Uh, Irish-American, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really sound like a South Shore accent. It's not quite a British accent either. I'd, he'd spent a fair bit of time in Canada working in television and theater and stuff so you know he'd been around Canadians at least so it's at least it's a Canadian accent yeah at least but but the other actors many of them are just sound standard American thesps you know yeah exactly (laughs) it's a weird mix of Canadian and and some American and and, um, some British actors so yeah all the location footage was shot 
you know, around around the you know St. Margaret's Bay area, and uh, and then they took a lot of the background footage back to England and shot a lot of stuff on the soundstage at Pinewood. Um, I think using the same big soundstage that they use for a lot of the James Bond films because it's uh, there's a dock with water and boats in it, and uh, Pinewood had a, a soundstage that could have a, like kind of a lake in it. Sure. Um, which weirdly enough, my uh, girlfriend's dad visited as a boy he was he won like it was like a field trip for like the local paper carriers got to go on this trip to pinewood and he so he actually saw a film in the same soundstage where they shot high tide it and anyway i'm getting off way off track but (laughs) but he's all right yeah he went to see the filming of a movie called uh they spent a day on the set at uh floods of fear starring howard keel former hollywood star who's hitting the bottle dallas right later later was on dallas but uh, he had that kind of a long decline there following uh-huh. seven brides for seven brothers another was he big Oklahoma, Oklahoma as well was that was uh, no Oklahoma he wasn't though? in Oklahoma but he, he was more of an he was an MGM guy and that okay. was a Fox movie but right but he was in seven brides for seven brothers and uh, kismet and a lot of these sort of later Hollywood musicals but then as you know the MGM kind of fell apart and all their stars were released from their contracts and he went to England for a while and so but yeah this film was called floods of fear and there was like basically the same kind of setup with docks and water and right. flooding so that tank it actually, I mean, 57, that predates Bond, but it yeah. must have been in use at the at Pinewood. I, yeah, it, it was the big stage at Pinewood. I think it okay. probably would have been used for Dr. No. I think later they actually built a huge stage purely for James Bond right. films, for yeah. things like, you know, the big submarine base climax in Spy Who Loved Me and sure. so on. Is sure, that, sure. But, um, but anyway, this, this this film's kind of interesting. It's about a young woman who... Um, We're talking about High Tide. High, high tide, tide at, at Noon, noon here. Yeah, yeah back <laughs> okay. to... Sorry. Let's bring us back around. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. this, this young woman uh, is coming back to the little fishing village on the island where she grew up and and has this kind of flashback to you know her first experiences of love with some of the local lobster fishermen including a very grabby Patrick McGowan <laughs> who you know puts the moves on her in, in a kind of a threatening way and um and of course the lobsters kind of dry up and everybody has to move back to the mainland they right. leave their village home behind and and so on and it, you know it's it's very typical kind of small town Fisher folk kind of fair. Uh-huh. There's some some pretty effective moments with a with a storm and a fight at the local barn dance and and that kind of stuff. And you know this fiddle music, which I guess feels relatively authentic. Um, uh, the woman's dad is played by Alexander Knox, who was a Canadian-born actor who had some success in Hollywood in the '40s. Um, clearly, at the end of his uh, career here. And the director was Philip Leacock, who I think was British. But uh, he also directed a Steve McQueen movie, The War Lover, which is a kind of an important early Steve McQueen drama, and then just did a crapload of te- series television. Uh-huh. Didn't have a lot of luck in features. Mostly by the by the late sixties and through the seventies, he was directing episodes of Fantasy Island and uh-huh. I don't know BJ and the Bear for right. all I know, you know <laughs> right. shows like that. Like you know, if you look at his resume, he directed one of everything, like every kind of show going. So, I mean, an interesting career. He was a working director. He was. Didn't look like he was idle for long, but certainly uh, feature films seemed to elude him after uh, a few early successes. Yeah, gotcha. But uh, yeah, interesting way to see, because I, I guess the, the context of this film is produced by the Rank Organization, which uh, I think had a share in the Odeon cinema chain across Canada, which would have had you know, cinemas in Halifax, certainly the Oxford and the Casino and so on, before they became Empire Theatres and now Cineplex, 
which was Cineplex already on. Anyway, it all comes full circle. But um, so they had this quota system where they had to produce some films that had Canadian content of some form. And uh, so you either by including Canadian characters in, mm-hmm. it, in random, if you see a lot of sort of minor British B pictures from the 40s and 50s, quite often there'll be a character who just happens to be Canadian. Right. Just because they knew there was a Canadian audience for these films and they had to include some little tip of the hat to the Canadian sure. viewers. Sure. Um, but, you know, this was a rare full-fledged uh Canadian story. So. And it's black and white and actually looks a little rough, the version that I, I well, you you showed me. Yeah, I got and, it. TCM uh, happened to show it and they've showed it again since, so I keep an eye out for it. It's an interesting curio. Anyway. Right. Yeah, and it does, it looks earlier than 57, I It thought. does. It doesn't, yeah. well, yeah, because by 57, most people are seeing things in Technicolor and widescreen. Yeah. It looks it looks like like 10 years earlier. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, anyway, um, I think we could... Uh, I, I feel like I don't know if there was anything from the eighties. I certainly will come back to the stuff that was homegrown, the Donovans and, mm. and their films. But uh but I noticed that in the nineties, from the mid nineties onward, it's almost like Hollywood rediscovered Nova Scotia and set a number of or came and shot a number of films here, even if they weren't set here. The Nova Scotia usually doubling for New England. Oh well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, Dolores Claiborne, for instance, the uh the Stephen King story, what, which was directed by Taylor Hackford and written screenplay by Tony Gilroy, it was shot here uh, again down near around around St. Margaret's Bay. Uh, Margaret's Museum, of course, was shot up in uh, Cape Breton uh, with Helena Bonham Carter giving her a, uh, even though it was a period drama, it gave her a break from the corsets at that yeah. point. That's all she had pretty much done. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a later period. I yeah, mean, yeah. At, at least it was a Cape Breton story. Yeah, so, yeah. So it had that going for it's it. A, it's a UK-Canada copro. Um, and there was another movie called Two If By Sea, a kind of uh, criminals on the run, uh, Dennis Leary and Sandra Bullock, uh, which again, Nova Scotia standing in as New, in- New England. And probably most famously, of course, Titanic was partly <laughs> shot in Nova yeah, Scotia. Yeah, all the Modern day sequences. Yeah, though, though I don't know that you could tell. Like, I, I don't, I don't get a sense of like of having watched the film. I don't, you know, there's not a lot of recognizable Nova Scotian locations. For no, instance. most of it takes place on a boat. Um, <laughs> so it could be anywhere. Um, <laughs> but yo, you well, don't no, mean no, you don't I mean the Titanic. mean the modern day. Stuff. I mean the Bill Pullman. <laughs> right. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The, the, or the Bill Paxton. The Bill Paxton. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. did it again. I do that all the time. Yeah. The the pre uh, PCP and the chowder Bill Paxton yeah. scenes um, <laughs> take that, place that, on a research vessel where they've got the <clears> the the underwater the diving bell submarine yes. things that go down to the Titanic. Uh, I think there might be some footage that was shot at the Bedford Institute of Ocean- Oceanography. That's right. where the boat was based that yeah. they were using. And uh, the footage with Old Rose, who's played by uh, veteran Hollywood actress uh, Gloria Stewart, uh, her house, I think, was played by... Um, her house was played by... I think they used the Evergreen, the, uh, the house that belonged to uh, Helen Creighton, the folklorist, which is now the Dartmouth Heritage Museum, but I don't think it was at the time um, before they tore down the, the actual Heritage Museum. Um, I, th- I think they used Helen Creighton's house as Rose's house because it looks out over the water and uh, you can okay. see the harbor and oh, all that kind of stuff. I, I think that's where they shot her scene, so I'd have to go back and look, but I, I think that's the case. But that's about it, yeah. they. I mean, they weren't here for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, I think Cameron's perfectionism, uh, you know, dragged the, the shootout longer than it might have... Uh, the, um, under ordinary circumstances, but um, but still, you know, it's a pretty notable chapter in filmmaking. And certainly, a lot of people, a lot of local people, worked on that uh, that that shoot here. So. Right? Yeah. Well, and as you made reference to the the mythical tale of the uh, the the bad lunch <laughs> uh, that that apparently uh, made a lot of people pretty sick. Yeah. That well, you know, 
people were taken to emergency and uh, I don't think they ever proved who did it as some disgruntled crew member apparently or something mm-hmm. like that spiked the chowder at the rap party but uh, it's <laughs> yeah not a trip you're bound to forget it, <laughs> speaking of of trips on the Titanic uh, you know there were lots of disasters uh, in that in that uh, that production but uh, eventually of course a huge success oh yeah of course uh, it's funny you mentioned two if by sea I actually uh, I, I happened to run into uh, the the gaffer on that film, uh, a guy who was rigging the lights, uh, a guy named Mongo, uh, <laughs> just went by the name Mongo, speaking of Blazing Saddles, and um, he he was he told me a story about how, uh, I guess Dennis Leary drove up from Boston, uh, came over on the ferry, they were shooting on the South Shore, I'm not sure what locations exactly, but um, Dennis Leary showed up in his brand new SUV uh, and was really proud of this thing, and Mongo drives this really super beat up uh, Land Rover. But um, and uh, I guess Dennis Leary was sort of making fun of his Land Rover. But and then Mongo's all, well, I'll race you across country and see who comes ahead. And of course, this thing was brand new. He didn't want to take it out into the bush, you know. So that that kind of ended that argument right there. Apparently, so, <laughs> um, so you know, it's only an SUV if you decide to use it for S or U. So there you go. Otherwise, it's just a V. <laughs> Um, before we leave the 90s, uh, we should definitely mention that uh, the Scarlet Letter was shot here in Nova Scotia, uh, down down near Shelburne. Shelburne, yeah, that's right. Back when uh, when Shelburne was more of a location for, for big movies. And this was a pretty big deal. Uh, certainly, it was Demi Moore's effort to try to to create a prestige drama period film, something that she wasn't really well known for. And uh, and then, of course, Gary Oldman and Robert Duvall both worked on it. I mean, this is a, a, a pretty big movie. Uh, I had a friend, a good friend of mine, who worked on the film and, uh, and had nothing but good things to say about M- Ms. Moore. Uh, in fact, really enjoyed working with her, said she had a great sense of humor. Uh, but uh, there was a sense that the film was very liberally uh, taking <laughs> taking uh, of the story of yeah. the story oh, yeah, yeah, going off into a new direction I mean a lot of I, tangents by the end I think the crew he said the crew was calling it the big red A <laughs> for how much you know it, it related to the original source material uh, but yeah and it wasn't considered a success critically or commercially when it came out um, but uh, but there were around that time with all the Hollywood coming here they, they kept coming and, and after Titanic and uh, James Cameron was here. His ex, Catherine Bigelow, shot two films here in in Nova Scotia: *The Weight of Water* and *K19: The Widowmaker*. One right after the other. Um, and uh, I wonder if maybe he tipped her off. I'm not sure how she got here, you know, so quickly after that. But maybe it was just a coincidence. Um, but we've talked about *K19* a little bit on our *Submarine* podcast. Um, I've seen both of these films fairly recently. *The Weight of Water* is an odd film it's a <laughs> because it's split into two time periods it's it's a story a contemporary uh a woman is searching uh looking into the story of a murder that took place an axe murder that took place in the region and then we keep flashing back to the actual time of the murder with Sarah Pauly in it uh she's she's the woman sort of the center of the story uh, and Kieran Hines is uh, is well I don't want to give too much away but he's in that portion of the story um in in the current uh day is Elizabeth Hurley J- Josh Lucas uh, uh Sean Penn yeah. Uh, yeah and I mean it's it's a it's a bit of a curiosity but but it's great use of locations a lot of of uh, scenes on yachts as as they float around in the in the 
placid uh, ocean off of uh, the South Shore coast. Uh, it's beautiful, and of course, beautiful people, beautiful water, beautiful sun. You know. Yeah, I did not like this film. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, maybe they'd stuck to the flashback story. Right. I mean, the, the, I'm not even really. I can't even remember why the Sean Penn Elizabeth Hurley story exists. It would seem kind of pointless in the long run. But the story with the Sarah Pauli, uh Kieran Hines uh, part of the story was was fairly compelling but then they mm-hmm. switch back to this modern day stuff that just uh what these kind of horrible self-involved people right <laughs> just sort of it rambles a bit that's for sure yeah I, th- I think there was a good story in there but uh the contemporary part of it uh i don't know i, just, I found they didn't match up very well and, right and, and one kind of worked against the other I, and maybe that was sort of the point but to have the contrast but it it didn't hold together for me as a whole yeah um, uh, we should say that uh, the shipping news from 2001 was shot here for about, well, 10 minutes of the movie. Just the <laughs> opening segment. Kate Blanchett, uh, when she gets together with Kevin Spacey and... Uh, uh, they're on a there's a there's a scene shot at a at a, a near the corner of Atlantic and South Bland mm. uh, near the grain elevators actually a lovely lovely shot right there. Um, well, it, I, well, they actually they did show, they shot a fair bit of that on a soundstage at in Burnside oh, outside okay. of Halifax. Okay, they, there you the, go. The Tour Tech uh, soundstage was, right. was used for a lot of like like the the interior of the Newfoundland cabin was actually right. okay. recreated on the soundstage in Burnside Industrial Park, um, and uh, this this. Actually, was on the set uh, the day that they were shooting stuff where uh, Kevin Spacey is in the press room. That was actually okay. shot at the Herald. Oh, no kidding! And uh, I, I spent like the afternoon just watching him work, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, watching the sort of him and uh, was it Lassie Hellstrom? Yeah, know, sure, sure. Great uh, Scandinavian director. Um, uh, just watching him give him direction, tell him to you know play the characters, this more kind of beaten down kind of guy, and. And uh, you know, just slump more, and, that sort of, <laughs> and you, you know, I think it was early on in the shooting, and you just saw him sort of become this this slumpy guy who moves to the East Coast. But of course, this was set in the—I think it was supposed to be an upstate New York newspaper or something like that—and I think they actually came came up with like a fake uh, like front page to be coming right. off the presses and all that kind of stuff. But he was very charming. He was joking, you know, like between takes, he joked around with people uh, on the set and was very friendly with all the office people came down to to watch them work and you know which you know normally it would be like you know, they'd have security shooing everyone away but they didn't seem to get too upset about it so you know some of the people who worked in the front office were, were in watching them film and and he was very charming and the thing i loved the most was um uh he had a he had a little cooler full of diet cokes like right there next to his chair because i guess you know that's what he he liked to drink between takes or whatever diet coke and um and, and then but there was a sign on his cooler it said uh Mr. Val Kilmer. <laughs> what? Well, uh, it was just a weird, I guess there's a weird sort of uh, joshing relationship between uh, Kevin Spacey and Val Kilmer. I think they were in theater school together or something okay. like that. Okay, yeah, I can't think of a movie that they did I don't together. know that they worked together, but but huh. they are pals apparently. Okay. And, uh, and maybe they've even worked on the stage together. But, um, but yeah, there's... <laughs> it took me a little while to figure out why I had Val Kilmer's name on, on the cooler. And that <laughs> in joke. It was some weird little in joke, but yeah, apparently yeah. They, they're friends from way back, so it has huh. something to do with that. There you go. There you go. Uh, 
Snow Angels was also a movie shot here in 2007, and this was David Gordon Green's wintry family drama, incredibly bleak film, if you've seen it. Oh, yeah. Uh, But uh, I noticed there's lots of scenes shot up on the Bedford Highway. Uh, Chinatown. Yeah, Amy Sedaris and Kate Beckinsale both work at Chinatown Restaurant, and then uh, uh, Kate Beckinsale uh, pays a visit to the Stardust Motel at one point. (laughs) Uh, But uh, interestingly, I got a little anecdote from from that that era. I... uh, um, David Gordon Green was having dinner in town, and uh, well, I knew someone who was from North Carolina, and she she invited me to join her because he that's where he's from, and I guess they made the connection that oh. that, that she was here and living here, and so I got to spend an evening with the guy, and uh, very very uh, charming and yeah. easygoing filmmaker, and we we started talking about Terrence Malick because they had knew each other uh, Gordon Green had had uh, yeah Malik produced one of his films yeah yeah and I and I was saying that uh, you know as as any good film nut uh, you know big fan of Terrence Malick and his legendary filmmaker who works so infrequently uh, at least at that point especially yeah. and uh, and I said you know what does he do with his time and 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 sort of and <laughs> Green sort of leaned in he said you really want to know you really want to know what he is up to? I'm like, yeah, of course I want to know. And he says, well, he's so he's such a interested in the technical side of filmmaking, the cameras that he has. I guess he maybe has a company or he does work for a company wherein he tests all the newest cameras that are coming on the market. So he will get a get the newest digital cameras and and uh, and film cameras and and uh, test them out and and uh, and tell you know give give his take on on their quality and and how well they work. Uh, so he is that's what he does a lot of spends a lot of his time doing. Oh sure, well he was like Kubrick in the seventies, like when it was still just you know film and it wasn't digital, but uh, you know experimenting with new optics, uh, you know trying out these lenses that have been designed for use by NASA, trying right. to use them for you know. Being able to film with natural light, instead mm-hmm. of, you know, and on days of heaven and things like that, and and so yeah, that that that's an interest that goes way back. Actually, speaking of Terrence Malick, you know what else he does with his free time? Um, and I've heard this story from a couple of different places, but apparently he likes to come to Nova Scotia and birdwatch. No way. There, there's apparently a couple of stories about him, you know, during migration seri- season. Going down to the South Shore to, to track migratory <laughs> birds on Cape Sable Island, <laughs> amazing, or somewhere along because that's one of the hot spots. That and Briar sure. Island are the two of the hot spots for migrating birds. But and if you watch his films, there's a lot of shots of birds. There are. He really spends his time <laughs> looking so. at the landscape to the point where I think this may be one of his criticisms of his films is that the the landscape is as important as the characters, and that and for some people that's that's problematic. Oh uh, well, it's, yeah. uh, you know, I like the way his films look. So. Yeah, I do too. I, I'm, I find I find them lovely. So so yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I keep uh, a running tally of bird shots, and <laughs> and, and I, it's in the I think it's on the Criterion DVD of uh, Days of Heaven. They actually, you know, talk about how like if a flock of birds was going by, he'd like rally the crew to turn the cameras around and capture like you know the, the, the he definitely is obsessed with all them, right and, which is fine by me yeah me too totally <laughs> um a couple more things to mention now these are films that could be called homegrown we're going to get to the homegrown films in a moment uh these are sort of on the border wherein like for instance okay uh poor boys game a film i really enjoyed a sort of a, a racial drama that was shot uh, directed by clement virgo who's toronto-based filmmaker but uh, written by Chaz thorne who mm. is local uh and uh and uses an a uh, 
pretty much an amazing collection of Halifax locations. So you watch that movie, and I, I recently in an article, a piece I wrote, I called it sort of the king of the Halifax location because there are maybe six or seven prominent yeah. exteriors that you can completely immediately tell where they are. And uh, from from the Dartmouth waterfront to the south end, um, to uh, Maynard Street, York Redoubt, uh, and the Olympic Hall, where the final boxing match takes place. This is uh, uh, Rossif Sutherland, and uh, uh, is a is a guy who's well. It's 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 a there's there's bad blood between two families in uh, here in in Halifax, and it's a racially charged issue. And there's a lot of violence in their past, and they have a hard time getting getting past it. And and Danny Glover, I guess, the biggest name that is uh, in the film, and it's it's really worth a worth a look if you ha- if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, that and then uh, and then down to the dirt from uh, 2008, which is from an adaptation of Joel Thomas Hines' book, uh, which he acts in. He, That's right. He, he turned into a film. He rewrote the book and then he acts in it. Which uh, they had to change it a little bit because the character in the book was a great deal younger than he is in the film. But Halifax, it's largely set in Newfoundland in St. John's, but Halifax is the big city that he travels to from Newfoundland, and there are some scenes shot here. Uh, and again, it, it feels it's it's I guess it's it's. Uh, uh, it's probably a from away film. I guess it's how. It, I guess it depends on how you how you uh, you know uh, it's, categorize that. It's not from far away. It's not from far away. <laughs> from close by. <laughs> yeah, we can call. We can own that. We can call it our own too. So the homegrown films don't go so far back. They they. I mean the the most prominent early. Nova Scotian film is probably going down the road from 1970. I imagine that's that's certainly one of the first sort of major portrayals of uh, of East Coasters on in a in a significant uh, feature film for sure. And uh, uh, very little of that was actually shot here. Uh, like really, I think I think the the I think there's some stock footage at the start that uh-huh. was shot around Cape Breton, but for the most part, I think once they hit the ro- they hit the road and they're in they're in Ontario, they're in Ontario, right? And um, you know, but it, but certainly there's that that feeling of these guys going to Toronto, right? You know where the the rainbow ends. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. I mean that feeling it, permeates the film. It's, yeah, uh, you know, and, and and also led to one of the best SCTV sketches of all time. <laughs> so you know, which is included. There's a Blu-ray of Going Down the Road and the sequel Down the Road Again, which came out, uh, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, even. Um, and it, they actually got the rights to include the SCTV sketch because so many people had asked for it. So if you could find it, I found it in the bargain bin at Giant Tiger. Uh, so if you poke around, you might find one. And, it, and the fact that they included the SCTV sketch about of going version of going down the road, which also includes Jane Eastwood in right. the SCT playing the same role yeah, yeah. as she did, but because she was friends with all those. SCTV guys. So, but the fact that they got her to play the same role in the comedy sketch says a lot about the feelings that people have about this film. Um, also, an early, early film, uh, early, and I use that in quotes, early, uh, The Bay Boy from 84, which was actually one of Kiefer Sutherland's first, first films. Uh, Daniel Petrie directed, who went on to having a pretty big career. Yeah, well, I mean, he was born in Glace Bay. It's loosely autobiographical, I guess. It's, I don't think it's specifically about him, but it is certainly inspired by his, uh, his uh, youth in, in Glace Bay. And, of course, he went on to work with, like, you know, Streisand and, and Judy Garland, you know, <laughs> right. all this amazing work in television and so on. And, um, you know, not, maybe not a top flight director, but, you know, this material is close to his heart and it's a lovely, lovely film. Um, I think it only ever came out on VHS. Uh, it doesn't turn up on TV much, if ever. So, uh, well, it's fairly risque, as I recall. There's some, oh, some yeah. there's like yeah, a there's some famous s- sex scene in it. Yeah, sure. Um, 
There is a VHS copy at the Halifax Regional Library if you <laughs> care to check it out. <laughs> um, I made a DVDR of it, so uh-huh. don't tell uh, don't tell the copyright lawyers about that. But um, <laughs> so that you know, it's out there if you you know if you really want to see it. Exactly. Um, we watched the other night Candy Mountain from 1987. Speaking yeah. of movies that are hard to find, now I guess there's no DVD version of no, this film. Never. Uh, and I actually asked somebody who was associated with it not too long ago but like is this ever going to surface you know it's got such a legendary cast and yeah. Robert Frank who co-directed it with uh, the great Rudy Wurlitzer who uh, wrote Tulane Blacktop and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid um, you know like this amazing progeny behind this film partially shot in New York partially shot in Cape Breton um, but apparently the music rights are would cost more than it'd be worth to put it out on home video right so, of course um, I don't know why it escaped onto VHS originally, but a, yeah, a proper restoration isn't going to happen anytime soon, despite Robert Frank's kind of fame and, you know, uh, notoriety as an artist. Right. But, um, yeah, it's one of those movies, it's a road movie, and it's one of those movies where they cast a bunch of musicians in acting roles, yeah. which there that's its own separate genre right there. <laughs> I mean, there's not too many of them. I think it's straight to hell maybe or something where there's just there, there's every time you get a new scene, it's episodic kind of quality. Every time you get a new scene, there's someone an incredible from Tom Waits to Dr. John to Joe Strummer, uh, Rita McNeil, for <laughs> she, instance. And she's lovely. She's <laughs> yeah, so wonderful. She's really in her, great. In, in the one scene that she has, when they go to a bar in Sydney, um, and, and so I asked somebody what bar that was. They thought it was the old Capri club. Uh, which is now a completely different place, but um, I'm not I'm not 100% sure about that. I'll have to find out, but uh, I know one of the guitarists that's in that scene, so I'll have to pester him next time I see him. Okay, well, it's uh, it is a it's a really fun little movie, and and it's quirky and unusual. So if you can track it down, you can find the VHS copy. It's it's pretty much worth seeing just just by some of the joy of seeing those those faces crop up and and you know just they they. They've got a certain quality to them that that uh, an an unvarnished quality, I think, a lot of yeah, these, these and, musician actors. And there's like, you the whole time you're watching, you're wondering which parts are scripted and which parts aren't. And like, you know, I, I think like the Tom Waits thing. I think there's a lot of improv happening in that scene. You know? I think you're right. You, yeah. you watch him in his golf clothes, which is, I mean, that's just funny right there. <laughs> um, you know, or the the scene where. Uh, where uh, Dr. John is arguing with uh, his younger wife, played by Laurie Metcalf from Roseanne. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess pre-Roseanne. But, um, you know, just, uh, you know, are they, they just bicker back and forth in the kitchen, and it feels pretty loose um, and improvised. Uh, and, you know, the the, the scenes that Jane Eastwood shows up again. Again, yeah. <laughs> towards yeah. The, the film. Uh, and... Uh, you know the scene with Rita. She has just a couple of lines, but it's a it's a nice little scene. Yeah, Leon Redbone gets to sing a song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe Strummer plays a bit of a song at the start of the film before pointing a gun at our hero and refusing to give him his guitar back. Um, I think there is ex band members. There you go. That, that kind of kicked him out, so that yeah. he has to go on this odyssey to Cape Breton to find this legendary guitar player, played right. by Harris Eulen, who's one of those guys like. He's one of those actors where you just go, oh, it's that guy. That guy, he's yeah. He's been so of, much stuff, exactly. you just recognize his face. Yeah, look yeah. him up. You'll, you'll yeah. spot him right away. Um, we should say a few things about the fact that uh, the Donovans made a bunch of films here in the 80s and in the 90s uh, with Salter Street. Um, now, we talked in our uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland uh, podcast we talked about uh, one of those films um, Defcon 4 Defcon 4 but he they also made George's Island and Siege and uh, yeah there are a few films that are again are hard to find but uh, are worth seeing yeah Defcon 4 of course was picked up by Roger Corman's New World Picture so it lives on it, you can get it on a DVD as a double feature with Hell Comes to Frogtown okay with, with the sadly 
dear departed uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. So right. That's, yeah. That's worth looking for. But um, but yeah, Salter Street was unique, and that was the first time anyone tried to create. You know, since Evangeline, I think that an, an honest to goodness film studio or film production company, anyway, in Halifax, and they kind of got their start with a low budget film about a submarine that they shot for one of the early uh, pay TV channels. I think maybe the Super Channel. It's called South Pacific 1943. I think they just built the submarine set, and I think it all takes place in the sub. And then, oh. uh, and that you know, they made enough money from the sale of that. Uh, I don't even think it ever show, was shown theatrically. Um, they made Siege, which was basically... Um, also called self-defense. Yeah, self-defense on home video and some weird releases. But that got shown worldwide. It showed up on theaters in England, and it got... Uh, you know, I, I saw video copies of it in the States, and um, I think it got released in South America. And it's uh, basically a retelling of Fort Apache, you know. With, right. Um, but uh, instead of uh, the cowboys uh, holding up against uh, the Sioux, in this case, it's... Um, uh, a bunch of people who are fleeing uh, these self-appointed vigilantes who are trying to uphold law and order during a police strike in Halifax. And that there actually was a police strike in Halifax, which is what inspired the film. And they got footage from the actual police strike, like news footage from, I think, maybe CTV um, to use in the film. Uh-huh. And I think that's where the video version opens with that footage. And, right, yeah. And then gets into the story where these, these guys... Um, decide to terrorize the patrons of a local gay bar and then somebody gets killed and they try to kill all the witnesses but one of them escapes and then he he hides in a house which just happens to have like a survivalist living in it and they face off against these uh, these vigilantes um, it's got a bit of an assault in precinct 13 e- vibe exactly it. yeah it's very yeah. much inspired by those which was inspired by those John Ford westerns because sure. Carpenter was such a John Ford nut and uh, it's you know I got a chance to see this before it was cut uh, for distribution because there's a bunch of stuff at the start all shot in downtown Halifax that is not in any available version of the film like basically you see this guy walking through this it's like walking through Halifax in the early morning and it just looks like you know you know all hell's broken loose kind of uh-huh. thing um, you see a bunch of punks stealing a car and they're all friends of mine there <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, and, and uh, they you know so I got to see the version of the film that they were in mm. the, with the scene of them stealing the car and then when they saw the film when it showed up on home video they were really disappointed to see that they weren't in the oh, film too bad very very sad but yeah. it's, but it's a it's even in the cut form it's kind of a fun action film there's a gr- the standoff stuff is great all shot mm-hmm. on Salter Street in a house that's now a car park um, uh, with the old maritime telephone and telegraph building on uh, on Hollis Street there, um, used as like a vantage point by the vigilante gang. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it's it's a really great kind of genre thriller shot in downtown Halifax. I have a set of French lobby cards for it. It's kind of nice. Is <laughs> wow. one of the, one of the shots is a guy running across the roof of the building that's now the Carlton. Well, actually, okay. it always was the Carlton. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, anyway, one of the it's this guy. You can see the TD Bank building in the in the in the uh, in the background it's kind of a cool uh cool image to have on right. the, on a lobby card sure um so obviously it got a theatrical release in france <laughs> so where it was probably dubbed so the, the film uh, you know kind of made their name because uh, right. it did get an international uh, distribution it did get on video in a bunch of different countries and uh and it you know enabled them to get some production partners for some of their upcoming films which were you know, made on higher budgets. Uh-huh. So things like uh, there was a f- they made a film about a guy who goes back in time to the time of the Romans, and it was shot. It was a co-production with Argentina, and uh, I think it was called the Norman Invasion or something like that initially, and then it came out as Norman's Awesome Experience <laughs> because they were really? ca- yeah cashing in on Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure, uh, of course, of course. And yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but basically, this guy gets goes back in time and winds up leading some Roman. Uh, 
invasion or something. Okay. I, I, I haven't seen it since it came out, so the, the details are a bit blurry. And uh, I know it did come out on video under that name, but I, sadly, I do not have a copy. Right. Okay. Um, I want to mention New Waterford Girl from 1999. Uh, Directed by Alan Moyle, uh, who whose Pump Up the Volume, I guess, is maybe the film he's best known for. Uh, he's a Canadian director, though, has worked in the States a lot. And uh, the writer, Trisha Fish, is local. And this is an absolutely lovely film. I saw it again recently, and uh, it's it's got all the sort of charm and quality of a John Hughes film, except it's set in 1970s Cape Breton in, in New Waterford. And uh, that feeling, that John Hughes feeling, is bolstered by the presence of Andrew McCarthy <laughs> In the, in the movie. Um, but it, it introduces Leanne Balaban, who's gone on to have a pretty great uh, career in Canadian film. She plays a teenager who's so sick of her small town that she pretends to be pregnant in order to be sent away. That's her, her big <laughs> plan. Uh, uh, of course, it upsets everybody. And uh, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's probably my favorite homegrown Nova Scotian film. And uh, and it's pretty well known, I think, and, and easy, not, not hard to find. Uh, and that's one I would recommend if someone uh, listening to this who's not from here wants to get a taste of, of, uh, of what what it's what it's like here maybe maybe not all the you know the 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 tourist brochures but uh but i think i think what really works about the film is it's a universal experience of small towns of teenagers being frustrated with with the limitations of of where they're from and coming trying to come to peace with that in some way yeah it's really funny and clever and uh leanne balaban is absolutely delightful in it she was a real uh, discovery uh in this film and yeah there's, there's a there's a humor in it that that uh, you know, you don't always get in a lot of a lot of homegrown films are really serious mm-hmm. and can be kind of ponderous sometimes. Uh, and uh, you know, this was light and it had that kind of feeling of local humor. And it was uh, I really liked her friendship with uh, Tara Spencer Nairn, Nairn yep. who I think later went on to be on Corner Gas. Yeah, that's right. She um, did. So, but she's in, she's great here, and I kind of wish she'd be better used in in other stuff because she just seems really delightful and and uh, I got to talk with Alan Moyle I think when he came back for the film fest uh, okay. premiere of the film and you know he just he had nothing but great things to say about his time shooting here he really I mean he's I think he's originally from Montreal okay but he really liked uh, being back in Canada and he, he said he always had a fondness for this area and always wanted to work here so it was the perfect match and mm-hmm. uh, Empire Records is the other thing I think that yeah comes that's to mind. right yeah that was also his yeah um We've we've definitely uh, Nova Scotia has spawned some great filmmakers. Tom Fitzgerald uh, certainly is a high profile filmmaker who's continued to make feature films. Starting with The Hanging Garden, he made The Event, Three Needles, and a, a movie I really enjoyed, uh, Cloudburst mm-hmm. from 2011, about two women, longtime lovers from the United States, who drive up to Nova Scotia in order to get married. Uh, a really unlikely but charming road movie, uh, you know. And and then Daniel McIver is a playwright whose films whose Plays have been turned into films. Uh, Marion Bridge, probably most prominently, um, starring uh, uh, Rebecca Jenkins, Molly Parker, and and Ellen Page. Of course, Ellen Page coming <laughs> from from Halifax, and she got her start here in television and film. She worked with Andrea Dorfman on uh, Love That Boy. Andrea Dorfman, who who after taking a break from from feature filmmaking for a number of years, came back to it recently with a, an amazing film, a film I really loved called Heartbeat. Heartbeat yeah, yeah uh, about a, a musician who has uh, has stage fright, Tanya Davis, and and slowly 
comes into her own as she starts to let go of her day job and her corporate life and and uh, and learns to reconnect with her muse and uh, and become a full time musician again. And it's a uh, and it, it's shot in the north end of Halifax around this time of year, maybe a little later through October, and it gets all the beautiful change of seasons it's it's absolutely gorgeous and uh, that was from 2014 and and i think is well worth seeking out yeah that was a lovely film i i I thought that um that it really you know had that poetic touch of the short film that they had worked on together prior yes that's right yeah and uh so it had a had a bit of that poetic feeling and that kind of um i don't know just that it had a down-home flavor without being cornball or or anything like that they just had that feeling of of a handmade film as it were yes um that that it was you know kind of a labor of love kind of thing which you know sometimes you don't get in the age of co-productions and you know films get made simply to get made sometimes and not you know not for you know that they put these deals together between different producing partners and stuff and you know quite often a good film will come out of it but it it may not have kind of the personal touch of of something like this yeah no absolutely uh and i i should also uh tip my hat to a few other films that have come out in the years since i moved to halifax uh, jason buxton's blackbird i thought was was a strong uh sort of a teen experience uh and it it it, it talked about someone who posts something on the internet and then it got out of control and and the, the kid wound up spending some time in jail as a result, and and uh, it was kind of a cautionary tale about about the way we live on the internet, which uh, which I felt was was clever and definitely universal. Um, and uh, yeah, and I would say also uh, I wanted to say a shout out to uh, Michael Melsky, local playwright and filmmaker, uh, whose film he he. Uh, he co he wrote Touch and Go, which was a the Scott Simpson's romantic comedy from two thousand three, which I only watched fairly recently, and I <laughs> also starring Ellen Page. Something I actually it's actually a, a film I quite enjoyed. But uh, Melsky became a, a filmmaker himself and uh, and directed uh, Growing Up, uh, sort of a pot comedy, and then he directed Charlie's Own in twenty eleven, a a pretty gritty dark side of town thriller which uh, which showed definitely showed the parts of the marginal parts of Halifax in a way that uh, that you know you don't usually see in, in films here yeah I really like Charlie's own it kind of it, it, it almost kind of like predated that whole Marriott Spryfield gang war kind of stuff and before it actually really exploded in, 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 into the news like it just it it uh, underlined that it's not all uh, you know lighthouses and uh <laughs> yes and and sunny coasts here that that uh that there is kind of a dark side to living in this part of the world and and uh i thought the film captured it perfectly great uh great casting in that too some some fine acting yeah well glenn gould is the uh is the actor who's sort of the the tough yes. guy at the in the center of it and uh and he's he's great in it um yeah and um i also really uh, thinking back of all my film festival experiences i remember going to see jay doll's ultra creepy horror there are monsters oh, yeah. which uh which was like a, a visceral experience partly because so much handheld camera that that you feel kind of out, have a little bit of an out of body experience but also because it's genuinely crazy creepy yes. uh in a way that uh that not a lot of movies i've seen come out of this area are um and i think it would be also uh, i would definitely be missing uh if i if i didn't didn't say say also hobo with a shotgun was something that was special that came from nova scotia jason eisner's uh uh, uh, feature debut. Well, certainly that is the film that seems to have gotten the most attention elsewhere. You know, probably from being tied in with the whole Grindhouse thing with yeah, exactly. Tarantino and uh, Robert Rodriguez, and obviously uh, 
that fake trailer that they did for that was a was a big boost for uh, for Jason at that point, and and the feature film does not disappoint. Uh, <laughs> no, it really doesn't. You know, and the fact they got Rutger Hauer to come here and be in this film, and uh, and you know, there's another film where I, I was on the set for a couple of days, and uh, you know, H- Rutger Hauer like just threw himself into that movie with the utmost glee. It was, yeah, it was yeah. it was a bit like a kid, like it was like he was clearly in, enjoying himself making this movie and uh, it really shows on the screen it's a manic crazed performance and he's 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 uh, so much fun in this film and and you know it's 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 been a cult favorite worldwide at this point and uh, you know certainly uh, bodes well for the next feature that I mean Jason was involved with um, Turbo Kid yeah I think he produced that yeah he produced yeah. it and I think he was involved in the editing of mm-hmm. it uh, to some degree as well so you know he's been working on a couple of different ideas story ideas so hopefully whatever comes up next will be uh, be of the same caliber. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, and I'm sure it will. He's been doing lots of different stuff. Uh, and and you asked me earlier about the Atlantic Film Festival. What what stuff I I, I liked that I saw. And I think something I, I wanted to to mention was a, a film called Undone, which has not been widely seen yet, but uh, it was written by Floyd Kane, a, a local writer who now lives uh, in Toronto. Directed by Director X, who is the pseudonym of a director who uh, who works a lot, does a lot of video work in. Toronto and it's a it's a racial drama teen racial drama inspired by actual riots teen riots that took place in 1989 uh, in in um, Cole Harbor at the high school there uh, and it's it's contemporized and uh, I think it, it actually says a lot of interesting things about about uh, the stuff that you know is still happening today it doesn't it's still relevant uh, the fact that uh, there's some racial tension in this town and uh, you know we don't see enough stories about it so when this or poor boys game comes out or another recent uh, f- uh, film that I saw at the film festival Noon Gun it's great to see see the local filmmakers tackling this difficult subject mm. I guess on a similar note uh, one of my favorite uh, picks from the fest was uh, North Mountain uh, Brenton Hannum's uh, kind of feature debut and uh, Glenn Gould again is back he plays uh uh, kind of a shady guy on the run from uh, some local mobsters uh, with a bunch of their cash, and he teams up with a with a young Mi'kmaq man who lives off the grid in the woods of uh, they they call it North Mountain. They're not very specific. I mean, there's a North Mountain in the Annapolis Valley. It was all actually all shot sort of around Kejimakujik area for the most part. Um, that that highway between like Bear River and Liverpool, I guess, and and. Um, you know, they're basically they're they're standoff against these hoods who are just trying to get their money back, but uh, they're pretty brutal about in the way they go about it. And there's some revenge filled in there. But you know, I want I talked to those guys during the festival, and they were like, "Well, you know, how many other uh, you know LGBT uh, First Nations revenge dramas are there?" Yeah, there? you know, because they said, "Well, you know, it's." They joke that the easy comparison is is Brokeback Mountain meets Rambo, but but it's you know it's it's a pretty refreshing kind of very tautly paced film it's only about 75 minutes but um they really trimmed all the fat away and it, it really uh really works well it's just a really solid tense narrative i really yeah. enjoyed that one yeah i did too i saw it as well i spoke to brett about it and i know he he lost all the feeling in his feet for a while because they <laughs> shot they oh, shot yeah. like two weeks in the, in the deep snow and one of the worst winters in living memory you know in the middle of nowhere and i guess his boots just were substandard because because uh, <laughs> he had some serious problems after that but uh yeah the film is is uh, really ambitious and i think if there's something that uh that defines a lot of the filmmaking from this region it's uh it's ambition you know you got to 
you got to put it all out there because it's very, very difficult to make a movie in this in this uh, province. More so now than ever, thanks to uh, you know changes in the political climate and some decisions that have been made in the last year. And uh, I hope I hope it doesn't stop them from continuing to make feature films because because there's a lot of great ones. <laughs> Well, as the sun sinks slowly in the west, we bid a fond farewell to our Nova Scotia film rundown. Hopefully you can find some of these movies and enjoy some looks on the screen at our wonderful province. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 